My name is Conrad Satawa. I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I started coming out here to the Central Coast back in 1986, actually. A group of people invited me to begin to do some work out here. And I usually don't do a lot of public lectures. I usually do more small group type of lectures of people that I know or know about my work and like that. Uh, the first public lecture I did here was in 1987, actually, was on the harmonic convergence. And I had a much different viewpoint on the harmonic convergence than a lot of the new age people had at that point, because I was talking about that for that 25 year cycle that we were looking at, taking us from 1987 to 2012, was going to be a time of great challenges. And most of the time, most of the people were talking about the great light that was coming forward and all of these positive things, and that was all very accurate. But for light to come back into the world, we have to face darkness or what's broken in our systems. And that goes against so much of the ways we think about life. Uh, I'm a psychotherapist. I have a master's degree in uh, clinical psychology. It was my second career. I finished that in 1976. I've been awakened since the age of seven, and I've had communication with the invisible forces since I was seven years old. And, if, and I initially, when she asked me if I wanted to come forward and talk about some things, she wanted me to tell my story. But I told my story uh, at the Lorraine Conference, Lauren of uh, the Davis Spangler's group, a year and a half ago, and that's on my website. So if you want to hear my story and, and how I got involved with the unseen forces and the struggles that I've gone through and, and, and the rejoicing and the light that's come forward within that, you could listen to that. Because what I wanted to talk about was what's happened from 1987 to 2012. Again, so many people were thinking the end of the world was going to be happening, but it was the end of the way we perceived ourselves as a human being, not the end of the world. From an ancient Mayan perspective, when we begin to try to look at the arc of life, those different cycles that we begin to go through, and in the ancient Mayan calendar, that was a 5,000-year-old calendar at 2012, it completed a cycle. But the interesting part in that cycle, it took us to a new 400-year cycle of a repeat of the last cycle. And we are, since 2012, in the repeating of a 400-year cycle. And what that means is we are in a high area of transition. I'm a shaman, fully initiated in, in the Zutzahil Maya tradition. There are 28 different ancient Maya traditions in southern Mexico and Guatemala, and one tradition, the Chorti Maya in Honduras. When you look at National Geographics for many years, and you can still sometimes hear them talk about it, they talk about how the Maya civilization was extinct. It wasn't extinct. 
it changed shape and form. And we are in a very similar type of transition from 2012 for the next 400 years. 400 years. And we're just at the beginning of a new type of relationship that we are having with ourselves, with Gaia, with the earth, with all of the forces around us, including technologies, which I know most people really have a great difficulty with. <coughs> but everything is alive when we look at a shamanic perspective. Everything has a life force. Is it a human life force? No. But it is a living life force that allows us to begin to have relationships with the light, L-I-G-H-T, that's behind anything and everything. And when we're in times of great transitions, life begins to crack open. Now for most people, when we're looking at what's cracking open, we feel everything is just going to hell. Everything that we've known, how we've operated, how we interact, how we see one another, issues that we thought we would never be dealing with again are right in our face. And the majority of people are interpreting this cracking open as something that's very negative. But from a shamanic perspective, an indigenous shamanic perspective, this cracking open is giving us the opportunity to begin to work with light and let light coming in to transform whatever has been broken. Whatever hasn't worked, whatever has been in duality, because in the true indigenous culture, what we're dealing with is the ability to come into wholeness. The ability to come into a place where we no longer look at right or wrong or good or bad. We begin to become aware of that there is wisdom, not a cognitive wisdom, but an energy, a presence of wisdom that is available that will change your light, will change your energy in such a unique way that's going to give you the opportunity to see yourself, to see your families, to see the people around you, your friends, your work, your body, illnesses, struggles, challenges in a totally different way. Indigenous cultures talk about life is suffering, but we're not meant to suffer in life. 
life is suffering, the challenges in life is very present. But we're not meant to be caught and live the suffering. Now that took me 20 years to explore. I can get it in my head, but when it's my suffering, when it's my limitations, when it's my struggles, and it's my pain, what do I do? That's what this 400 year cycle is about. Is really learning how to work with the invisible forces in such a way that gives us the opportunity to begin to experience another way of perceiving. It was back in 1991 with my own interior, my soul, it was helping me to understand that there was another way to perceive. And it had me sit down in front of CNN, sometimes for eight hours a day, and take in all the struggles that CNN was bringing forward. And beginning to find how do I allow myself to experience love for the person and to see the light and the spirit behind the person regardless of the action or the events that they are doing in their life on an individual basis, on a country basis. It was very painful. My mind could not let go and make sense out of that. It's how to find that difference. But that began a journey for me in 1991 to really begin to know what the core of human nature was about. When we look at shamanism, most of the time we think of a shaman as somebody that goes into trance. that goes into and travels into other dimensions. For the ancient Maya, and for the modern Maya, especially my tradition, as a Zutsuhil Maya, there is no trance that we go into. The ancient Maya called it, they had a certain type of temple or house and it was called the Math House, M-A-T, where the individual would come into that temple and the forces with that temple would allow the invisible forces to come in to play. And we would meet together on the place of the mat. We would meet in the physical world as equals, not in trance, and begin to communicate. In the Zutsu Hill tradition, the shaman is called a ritual communicator. 
because of its capacity, its ability to communicate. To communicate what is needed between the invisible and the visible forces that are there. Many academics, based upon the Siberian model of shamanism, talks about what they do is going into, through trance, sometimes through hallucinogenics, through chanting, through music, through twirling, to have to go into an altered state and to leave your body behind and let your consciousness travel into the other realms. And there's a great debate always in the academic circles when they look at the ancient Mesoamerican cultures, were they truly shamanic? Because when we go back 3,000 plus years especially, there was no use of different hallucinogenic drugs. Around six, seven hundred, it becomes starting to be used in the ancient Mayan Mesoamerican cultures to go into certain types of trance with certain types of drugs in order to do some of the communications. Today, in the current Mesoamerica Mayan cultures, there is no drugs that are used to go into this form of communication. Wholeness is not a wholeness within myself, but wholeness is between myself and how I relate to the invisible world. How I experience and how I see the invisible world creates wholeness. Think about how different that is than when we think of a holistic approach to our own health, our own bodies. Wholeness also for the indigenous Maya is also based upon not how I relate to the invisible world, but how I relate to everything in nature. The relationships that I have and how the relationships that I have with the earth, with plants, with animals, with rocks, with the soil, with water, with air, with light, how these relationships are formed is at the heart of what it is to being a living being. The shift that we're looking at is no longer seeing ourselves as a human being, but a Gaian being that's human. Not as a human being, but as a Gaian being that is human. A human being has power over nature. A Gaian being that's human has a relationship, a co-partnership 
a co-creative space with nature. With technology. I know most people think technology, especially the older we are, we look at technology as something that's very foreign or stops us from experiencing how to relate. But it's only because we've not allowed ourselves to see the light and communicate to the forces that are behind technology and assist them on what we are really needing from technology to work together to bring us into a total different way of perceiving, into a totally different way of creating. When the academics come forward and they say, oh, this is what you're talking about is your religion. For the Maya, they say, no, this is not our religion. The academics say, yes, this is what religion is all about. The Maya say, no, this is what life is about. This is how we live life. It's not a religion. It's part of our daily living. Is how do we begin to bring light forward, to begin to experience whatever that is, that is the struggles that we go through as part of our day-to-day livingness. It's a different way to start to perceive ourselves. It's a different way to think. It's a different way to start to feel. It's not that we want to get rid of the mind, our thoughts, our thinking, our feelings. We need to re-educate our mind to experience a life of connection and a life of wholeness. So the purpose of the shaman, the purpose of communicating, is to assist the individual you're working with to open, to feel, and to experience their story, not one of suffering and limitations, but to begin to learn how to experience your story in such a way that you're able to begin to be a partner in dissolving the brokenness the shadows, the challenges that you're involved in and open to the light that's available. Religion, being human, we're born with sin. With maya, we're born with light. We each have a personality of self-light. Psychology 
and many other disciplines like that saying the personality is not a problem in life. From an indigenous perspective, the personality of light is at the core base of everything that you do, and we have to help you to grow that base. So that the growth of this base of light that you come into the world with, when you look into a newborn eyes, many people feel you're seeing the soul of the child. But what you really are seeing is the light that that child holds at its personality level. And that light can never be destroyed. That light is always there. But how we think, the actions we take, how we perceive ourselves and the world around us puts barriers up that separates our light from coming through. There are four primary sources of light that we work with in a shamanic structure. The first source of light is our self-light that we're born into. The second source of light is the light of the soul that comes into play. The third light is the light of the earth, of Gaia, as a living entity, a living source, a living, breathing source. So one of the first things that I do when I'm working with people, I ask them a simple question. What in nature speaks to you? What in nature begins to bring you into a place of centeredness and calmness within yourself? And for most people, we have different things that speak to us the uniqueness of who we are. But in that uniqueness of who we are, we rarely think of it as a living presence that we can have a relationship with. And that becomes the first part of the journey, is learning to experience the living presence of nature, not the feel-good presence that nature gives us. That's the difference. The living presence, not the feel-good presence. The fourth aspect is the overforce of humanity. At different times throughout the evolution of human nature. Humanity is a living force. Remember, everything is alive, right? So the idea of humanity is also alive as a living force. <clears throat> and what it is uh, gives us the strength to open to the capacities that we can begin to connect to. 
gives us the opportunity to change the limitations that we begin to have beliefs and attitudes about on what we can or cannot accomplish or can or cannot begin to do. These four premises are very important in an indigenous perspective. When I first began to explore the depths of indigenous cultures in the 90s, it was always very difficult, especially in the Zutzihil tradition, because we did the same rituals for the earth as we would do for crops, as we would do for animals, as we would do for humans. There was no separation because one force is not higher or better than the other, but rather each one of the forces come together. And when you bring light into the ritual dealing with the earth, you are also bringing light to animals, you're bringing light to humans, you're bringing light to the crops, and when we do the rituals with the crops, we're bringing light to humans, we're bringing light to the animals, we're bringing light to anything and everything that's there, because in the Western mind, as being human, we see the separation, or we see it in a hierarchical fashion. But in an indigenous perspective, we are all equal. This is part of the transition that began to occur in 2012. And in a period of about 10 years, it began to come forward in all ancient traditions, this similar type of change of beginning to feel and begin to experience the connection that we all have with one another. The choices that we have as a human being comes down to something very simple. Do I feed my relationship with my limitations? Do I feed my relationship with my challenges, my sufferings? Do I feed my relationship with whatever it is that I'm struggling with in my life? Or do I find a blessing and a gratitude for the struggles that are there in life? Because remember, Life is a challenge. Life has sufferings. But that doesn't mean I have to live and identify myself with my suffering. And in so many psychological structures, we begin to perceive our identity. I'm the cancer patient. I'm the alcoholic. I'm the drug user. I'm the pill user. I'm the abuser. I am this, I am that. 
And in traditional psychology, that has always been one of the first steps in recovering is to be able to own the identity that you have. Instead of, from an indigenous perspective, and this is what the Dalai Lama began to bring forward in the late 1980s. I was privileged to be in Southern California in a group where he spoke for the first time when he won the Nobel Prize in science. And he challenged a hundred of us, of therapists that were there, and was telling us on how what you think is good psychology kills the soul and the spirit of the person in the way you perceive, in the way you work with your people. And that room went into an uproar. Because everything that my training was in the 70s, as a psychotherapist, I was privileged that I saw energy fields. And I saw that many of the techniques to release anger, to deal with our emotions and our feelings, although they were beneficial initially to help a person feel better, their energy field became always smaller it became tighter and they lost more light. So by the mid-1980s, I had changed how I began to interact with people. So when the Dalai Lama began to talk about how you deal with your emotions and feelings and the way you look and identify on what humanity truly is limits the spirit he didn't call it at that time the light of the individual but it dimmed the spirit the soul of the person instead of that I am part of connection and wholeness within myself and my challenge is my alcohol. My challenge is my pills. My challenge is how I abuse myself or others or enable or whatever the words are that, are in, that we begin to work with. But that isn't my identity. That's my challenge. That I am here in physical form to learn how to bring light or the word that we use so much in our culture today to experience love because light is love light is compassion Light is hope. Light is gratitude. Light holds this essence of my identity. And as a being of Gaia, that's human, 
my brain, my cognitive awareness, the way my brain functions, gives me the free will to be able to transmute any and all challenges. Even though I may think or I'm told by other professionals that this challenge can never be transmuted. This is something you will live with for the rest of your life. Because in traditional psychology, the end result is we really can't change human behavior. You're always going to struggle with it. But from an indigenous perspective, your life can transmute any and all challenges, any and all sufferings. So as a shaman, and the first things that we do in any ritual is to connect the person back to their light, regardless of the challenge that they are bringing forward, being psychological, mental, emotional, physical, durbani, spiritual. It's how do we get reconnected once again back to the light of ourself as a person, of our soul, of Gaia, of the overforce of humanity and the potential that humanity holds to transmute any and all things. Because my emphasis for tonight is I'm going to explain why that works. How the soul and the choices that the soul makes to incarnate into the physical body into the physical world. Because again, in so many disciplines, we talk about how I'm spirit in the human body. But as a Gaian being that's human, I am a light, a spirit, that has an interrelationship with everything in Gaia, everything on the earth. I have a connection of the heart behind anything and everything. And in that connection, I am able then to transmute any shadow, any brokenness, any suffering, to see whatever the potential may be for myself at any moment in time, at any moment of any relationship that I may have. Can you feel the difference I'm trying to bring forward before I go into the specifics of how a soul incarnates and the rituals we do in the Zutzihil fashion that allows that to happen? and the development that happens on why that light is built the way it is in our subtle bodies, 
not the aura of the five sensory body. That's a reflection, but at the core subtle body that's inside of you, all the way down to the cellular levels within ourselves. Bruce Lipton, a biologist, back in the 90s won the Nobel Prize in biology for, the, for his biology of belief is that our genetics at that time talks about how our genetics cannot be altered, but we do not have to live our genetics out in our life. We are not imprisoned by the genetic makeup of who we are. I mean, this information has been out for many years now. And yet most of traditional medicine talks about how our genetics is behind whatever struggles we're dealing with with the body or other different types of patterns of addictions and how we have no choice but to live that genetic pattern out and to keep playing it out over and over and over again. That's not what this time frame in history is about for us. This is the ending of the old ways of thinking. The old ways, the ways we perceive human nature. That we have the capacity. We are in the most exciting time frame in human nature to be alive today even though it's hard to believe that with everything we see in the news and all of the struggles we're seeing on the planet and every civilization and how we're realizing we're treating people and our beliefs that we hold about one another. It's like everything is cracking open and falling apart. But remember, it's cracking open to do what? so that we have the free will is how do we bring light into that structure. That's the role of the shaman. To assist the relationships and helping individuals to form these patterns of relationships with all of the aspects of Gaia. In the Zutzahil tradition, Gaia is called Nawal Skirment. When you go online and you look at many uh, cultures of the Maya, you see a lot of Catholic names. You see a lot of different types of Catholic imagery. When you come into my office, it's full of Catholicism all around you and statues but it's full of indigenous energy coming through those statues because over the last 500 years, many times they had to give up the imagery of what their traditions were about in order to survive. What Catholicism 
this was they allowed the people that had their old beliefs and their old ways of living to create the new statues. So they gave them the imagery to create them with of a Catholic structure. But the people that did the carving, the creative people, put secrets inside of each one of those statues so that you may have a statue of Mary, but what you have is actually a statue of light, of a force that is the connectivity of all things that are there. You have a statue of Archangel Miguel, but what you have inside of that statue is the capacity in what it holds is the balance, not between good and evil, finding the wholeness between the invisible and the visible world, and it has a sword, for the sword will destroy anything and everything that comes in the way to stop the balance between the invisible and the visible world to live. It's not one that destroys evil. Because behind whatever we may think is our shadow, if it exists on the earth, it holds a light and a presence of love. Tomorrow night I'll be doing a ritual around this force that's here and that I brought this evening of the heart of water. And in that candle rituals, it will not be a burn, but a series of rituals with candles that each person will participate in is how we connect to the light of the heart of water. The power that is there in the heart of water is to dissolve, to unravel, to untangle any and all substances that is in the fluidity of your body. Our body and our brain has a lot of fluidity that holds a lot of toxins. It holds a lot of structures that are not connected into the flow of water. If you remember 10, 15 years ago in Japan, I don't remember his name. Moto? Moto. And all the work that he did improved about love with water. How it changes water. But he stopped at that one point because that same force of love in an indigenous structure, and this is what the heart of water is, isn't just dealing with the outer waterways but it's allowing that love, that light, to begin to clean 
and dissolve whatever is happening in your fluidity, in your brain, in your body, in such a way that the natural core of your light and your interconnectivity of your light to everything can begin to flow once again. So the first step in the rituals that we do is to connect you to everything in life, to the heart behind all things through love. And the forces that support love, <clears throat> compassion, hope, gratitude, kindness, Nurturance, caring. This is what's inherent that Dalai Lama talks about and indigenous cultures talk about that is inherent inside of each one of us. Think back on your life. How much has people helped you to grow those qualities? Or how much throughout our life we spend trying to get rid of the anger, get rid of the jealousy, get rid of the revenge, get rid of the fears, to get rid of all of these other things that we talk about constantly. We can't get rid of something first. We have to connect something first to what you really are about at your core of who you are as a guy and being that's human. And we just can't connect it to one aspect of you because your soul and your spirit that I'll go into this evening is also built upon its connection to everything on the earth. It's connected to everything. Everything. Because everything holds light. So in the rituals tomorrow night, I'll be taking people through a way of communicating to feel that core connection of light, of love, within themselves. And then how to begin to allow that light to begin to grow. And asking different forces of light for the assistance to bring about the web of relationships that are inherent at the foundation of who we are as a human being. That is what it is to be Gaian, a Gaian being that's human. This is our natural state. And it's the returning once again into the natural state. Not to get information on what does this mean, why am I doing this, what has happened, 
not to intellectualize it, but as an exchange of life, an exchange of energy that brings us back to the core essence, the core presence of who we are. Then the second phase of the rituals that we do is then to work with the different systems, the different organs that have been broken, that's out of balance, that is in the struggle, and to begin to dissolving whatever that is that stops the connection of light to flow. And again, it's not a psychological process to analyze it initially or to have to have an understanding of it. We just have to be open to say, I want to move this through. I want to change whatever this struggle, this challenge is that I've been living with for all these years of my life. And allowing the relationship, the partnership between the invisible and the visible forces to come together that allows then the connection of wholeness, the connection of this web of relationships that we're capable of living as part of our day-to-day -day life. For, there, for these are things that we can begin to do not in long meditations, not separating ourselves, isolating ourselves from life. We all live such busy lives, it's hard for most of us to even take a half an hour to meditate or to go into prayer. But these are different ways we can begin to learn how to make a choice to open. If you have time to ruminate about your fears or to beat yourself up for the choices you've made, you have time to ask light to enter. Free will. It's a choice point of focus on how we see ourselves as a human being. It's a choice point to focus. If we have time to question, why am I doing this again and again and again? I could also be asking to ask myself light to come forward. Of course, when we're beating ourselves and ruminating about these things, we don't think we have any light inside of us, do we? That's all we see ourselves as in our limitations. The shaman helps us to remember, yes, this is what you're perceiving, but you also could be perceiving who you really are. 
Yes, you had this history, and you know your history really well. The more therapy you have, you know your history really well. (laughs) And yet at the same time, you don't know your history of light and what you're really about. That is the essence of who you really are. And how do we open to that history to assist us to allow the light that rejuvenates, that renews, to transmute whatever struggle that you're about. I've worked with numerous people with chemotherapy, radiations, very powerful drugs, to minimize their side effects. It's not the medicine of chemotherapy or radiation that's the problem. It's the perceptions we hold and how we perceive what it's about is our limitation. In the Zussi Hill tradition, as many indigenous traditions, we spend a great deal of time bringing together teams of people (coughs) that are part of traditional medicine along with plant medicine and shamanic medicine. It's partially what's called good medicine. It's not the rejection of one for the other, but to know that there are good parts of anything and everything that could be of assistance to work with that. Because when we really begin to understand and how we begin to look at the whole structure, when we're dealing with plants, when we're dealing with medicine, and the different side effects and structures around that, it becomes so important that we begin to realize that there is a core connection that we're here to open with. And there are forces in the invisible world that will bring light for our assistance to help us to transmute any and all darkness. If we take for an example hope, psychologically we look at hope as being what happens that we want as an end result. From an indigenous perspective, hope is a living force, not a psychological force. It's a force of life. And in that force of light of hope, it holds a fire in our heart. In the sacred heart. The heart and our heart. 
And in that fire, in that light, hope begins to represent that regardless of my challenge, regardless of the source of my darkness or my brokenness, regardless of where my suffering is coming from, that light, that fire in our heart is stronger than any darkness and we turn to that light, hope, to dissolve, to unravel, to untangle whatever psychology, psycho, psychologically we have put in our place and taking the emphasis off of the end result and put it back into the journey. In the Zutze Hilmaya, hope is the force called Atma. It's the sixth day in the 20-day cycle of the daily forces of light, or Nawals. It's an important foundation for us in establishing our capacity to be able to make change. Because I know for myself, I wanted to change instantaneously. Bewitched, the television show. I want to twinkle my nose and have it done. Unfortunately, hope is a journey. And some journeys are short, some journeys are mid-range. Some journeys could be many years in a cycle before the transmutation can fully emerge. Most of human nature won't wait that long. If I can't feel a reprieve instantaneously or by morning, I lose hope that something will change. And I go back into my rumination. I go back into my old ways of thinking and feeling and perceiving. But with Nawal Akma, with hope, regardless of the time, when I come back and I let the relationship of connection of this web that I'm talking about, this web of life, of connectivity to that force of hope. And I feel that relationship that I have with this force, with hope, connecting and assisting me from the invisible to the visible. I suddenly have patience. I could say I'm a patient person, but if it doesn't change in a matter of 20 minutes, I get agitated. <laughs> for me, that's patience. One time in my life. I was there for 20 minutes. That was good. <laughs> it's only through the relationship that we have with these various forces. 
and learning how to call forth those forces. So in the most of the work that I do, I do not burden people with Zeusahil names. I occasionally will use them. But I learn how to translate that name into our language that it can make more sense for us. Akma or hope, hope speaks to us. <laughs> Akma seems so foreign. It doesn't care what you call it. It cares the quality of your relationship. As I was going through my training as a shaman, my mentors were always shocked when I would come back a few months later at the depth and the breadth of relationship I would have to the forces that I was exposed to. Because traditionally, it would always take many years for a shaman to really develop a relationship with the force. Not a mental relationship, but an energetic exchange of light and trust that that light will carry me through whatever my challenge is that I'm dealing with in my life. But one of the reasons why I was able to do that, because in spite of myself, I stayed awake since age seven. I'll be 71 this year. I stayed awake all these years and kept developing relationships energetically with these different forces. Now when you read material about indigenous cultures, especially the Maya, they say they have many, many gods and deities. They don't. They have one force. Heart of sky. Yaha. God. The goddess. And everything in life is representative in its unique form of that one force as a bird, as a tree, as a plant as an animal, as an iPhone. And I keep throwing that technology in on you. <laughs> there is a living entity, a living force behind all things. Don't curse your technologies. Don't curse your medicine. Ask the force behind it to teach you how to connect with it in love, to get the benefits that it offers you, to get the benefits that it can assist you in whatever it is your challenges are or your struggle is at this very moment. You can curse it, 
You can throw it away. You can be angry with it. You can ruminate with your fears about it and what it's doing to you and to everyone else around you. Or you could be asking it to have a relationship with its light instead and see what happens. You can't do both. Why not invest your time, invest your energy in developing connectivity and into relationships? So as the shaman, I'm there to connect people to the invisible forces and to bring them into the connection of wholeness in all aspects for themselves. The second phase is the abilities then to go into the areas of challenges, suffering, pain, whatever it is that the person or I am dealing with to transmute whatever that is. And the final phase is to allow the energy to come forward to recenter the person into their wholeness and allow the journey of light, the journey of love, the journey of compassion. To allow the journey then to continue to flow of the connectivity that we've done to reestablish whatever it is that had cracked open and to re-emerge into wholeness. When we're looking at a human masculine journey we're looking at a journey of death and rebirth. When we understand the feminine journey of life, it's the journey of emergence. Academics 15 years ago began to realize indigenous cultures, a few of them, we're not based on death and rebirth the way we think all cultures operate. And death and rebirth means I'm born and then I die and it's an ending and then I have to be born all over again. New Year's Eve. An old man with a cane. 31st of December. January 1st, a baby. Death, rebirth. And they're realizing every year more and more indigenous cultures were cultures of emergence, which is really based upon the quantum theory. Energy cannot be created. Energy cannot be destroyed. Energy comes apart and comes back together into a new form. That is in the heart of shamanism is to allow the coming apart, the cracking open of whatever it is that doesn't work. 
people for many years always think I'm so excited for you when you come down with your crisis and your challenges. I'm never excited that you're in a challenge or a crisis or suffering. But I am excited because I know your challenge and your crisis and your suffering means you're cracking open. And now we can let light emerge into a new form, into a new shape of interconnectivity that will allow you to live in a way you never lived before. I remember in the first groups in cancer that I was dealing with cancer patients in the late 1980s. I came in there thinking I understood what the human mind was all about. It was a group of six or seven adults, middle-aged, a little bit older. I was very young. And they were all talking about if they have to go through cancer again to learn what they learned about themselves in life, they were willing to do that. I went crazy. My inside was screaming, cancel, cancel, cancel. Don't think that way. You're destroying yourself. I wanted to say all these things, and my interior space kept me quiet and said, shut up and listen. And at the end of that 90 minutes, I realized in all of us in the group, there was one of us that was not psychologically healthy. <laughs> Me. They got it. They understood the mystery of illness. The transformative nature on how their life is so different and their relationships are so different and meaningful today that it wasn't before and they had the courage to make decisions that they never had before in their lives to do. It took me a couple of years to start, start to get healthy. But I listened because their energy fields showed me something very different much stronger, more light. And what I began to see whenever a person is diagnosed with an illness or a challenge within their life, there is this darkness in their energy field, but if we look two degrees to the right of the person, we also begin to see an emerging bright light that's available to that person. And I remember asking my interior forces, what is this light that's here amongst all of this darkness? And it would tell me that this is the spirit, the soul, the connection, the hope that's available for this person to transform in their lives even though everything else in their auric field seems to be so challenged at the moment.
And then as a therapist, I had a choice. Do I focus them on their challenge or do I begin to focus them on how to bring that light in? And that began to change and went against all my training. cracking open. We are in a time where life is cracking open all around us. There is so much light and so much potential. In 2012, I took on two positions in the community. One was the overseer of the Martine Bundle. This green cloth is one of number of layers of cloth that is part of the bundle. And the Martine bundle is the life force behind everything. As I took on the, the energy to begin to explore the relationship with that, I wasn't the seal, I was the overseer for the Navasil of the pattern of energies. Two years ago, I took on the position of the Navasil as the one that brings that life force energy behind all things into the world. It's one of two titles that I hold currently in the community. Because in that life force structure, it is a bundle, and you'll see that on my website, of potential. Of every aspect of life is held in this bundle that is brought out seven times a year into the world to recenter the world for different purposes based upon the timing and the focus of the ritual that's there. I've also been initiated into the tree of life, medicine. And in that initiation of the tree of life, medicine, that there are certain trees that are water-based, not sap-based. And in those water-based trees, many cultures, it holds that as their sacred tree of life, of the medicine that's there, because it holds the seeded nature of the potential that exists for people. And I'll be bringing that water forward tomorrow night as part of the ritual that you can begin to experience what that essence and that energy holds. I asked me what my name was in Zutsuhil, and what I hold is the position. And basically, I am the seed of the Nawals, is what I've been initiated to 
two years ago with the tree of life water to awaken the seeded potentials within people. The water, the bark of the tree of life holds an essence. For the ancient Maya, when a person enters into a new position, a king or a queen or a shaman, they don't start off as a tree. They start off as a tiny little sprout. Because you have the potential to grow into your new position. What will you do with that? And as all of you are aware of, when we're dealing with tiny sprouts, it's very fragile, isn't it? It's very vulnerable. That's why when we enter newness, something that truly is new, we don't like it. We feel vulnerable. Because we are this tiny little sprout that's beginning to grow in the outer world. And will I grow into a tiny branch? In this lifetime, will I grow into a limb? Will I grow into a trunk? Will I grow into something that's even larger and more substantial? That potential is inside of each one of us. We're seeded with that. That's why we don't like newness. We want to go back to the repetition of what we know, what's comfortable, even though it may hold challenges and limitations and suffering for ourselves. It's easier for our mind to go there. That's why we need a relationship with hope. To know that whatever the challenges are, I can walk through and grow and become the possible, the potential. Emergence only occurs by going into the unknown. That's why most people stop emergence. The last place we want to keep traveling is always the unknown. We like the repetition. We like to repeat. We like to re-experience. That was a great meditation, a great experience I had. I want to replicate it. And the more we try to replicate it, it becomes our death. Because we had the experience because we were in the unknown. And the only way to re-experience something is to go into the unknown again to re-experience it once again. That's at the essence of what a shaman does and how a shaman lives. And what a shaman then communicates that light and that presence to help guide other people into their journey of their unknown qualities. 
they're unknown spaces. <clears throat> so what I've tried to do in this first section is to try to bring forward a little bit different understanding than Siberian focus on shamanism. One key element also is that from the Siberian focus, men are primarily the only shamans. But Barbara Tedlock, eight, ten years ago, in her research, in the book she wrote, Woman in the Shaman's Body, was able to finally prove that the founding shamans were always female in nature. Not as midwives, as shamans. <laughs> and that the shamanic tradition is a feminine tradition that can also be experienced in a male form or a female form. But it goes against the Siberian form that is a male-dominated structure and women might be midwives, but not shamans. The shamanic tradition throughout Mesoamerica has always been in a feminine form. Like at Copan in Honduras, there are many graves that I've shown people and many trips that I've taken there with them of female shamans and female leaders structures. Now in the literature, when you look at a lot of the Mayan names in ancient Mayan history, a lot of them are men. But it's a given to their culture to know that the invisible force is always the feminine force. In many rituals, you will always see, usually, a male-female counterpart. And although the male may be here talking and doing the outer ritual, if you ever observe the female, she is the portal of the energy that's coming from the invisible world through her that is allowing the male to do what it's doing. And it's that combination of forces working together that gives us a truly shamanic tradition. It's rarely talked about. But observe it. You'll see it. You begin to experience it. The role of woman plays the invisible force. In Zutzihil, it is called Maria Cassiana. It's a statue that's about this tall. Cigar, cigarette smoking. She has a red bra, red panties, underneath her Mayan drag. Very much alive in her sensuality her sensuality, her sexuality. And underneath that, she holds in the different symbols of how her body is created 40 forces of wisdom. In its male counterpart, you have the Relock Mob, which is a much larger statue, and more people are familiar with the Relock Mob. 
but most of the time they talk about him <coughs> as being evil or many other different types of structures in the folklore but he's the living nature of love into the world and together they are the foundational couple that hold the foundation of light for the Zeusahil mind. And he also holds 40 components of wisdom that is tied up within his body that allows the various forces of wisdom to come through into the world to assist us in our day-to-day livingness as Maria Cassiano holds the force of that love, that light, and that wisdom that brings that in as the potential that's present. Can you feel what I'm trying to bring forward before I go into the specifics of the soul's development? The unity, the web of relationships that we're talking about. We do not incarnate into human form as a soul. We incarnate into a web of relationships with anything and everything that's on the earth And that allows us our emergence of our light, of our potential, of who we are. Is there any questions on this part? And we'll take a break. And then I'll take us into the developmental process of the fetus, soul, and the rituals that we do to allow this form of connectivity to be present and why as a human being, that's Gaia, we need this interrelationship with this larger web of life to be present for our life to work today. Any questions or comments? It's all of that and more. And that's what I'll talk about in the second half. Is the more of all that. That's exactly what it is. But it's choosing a lot of different forces of life and connection to come together. Much more than just that. Very much so. The the power that's there in the real understanding of Mary Magdalene. Uh, A woman that I know, she wrote a book a number of years ago, was Mary Magdalene the Shaman. It's a book you might enjoy as a woman to read. Her name is Sarah Taft. She lives in the Los Angeles area. Um, 
it's a whole different approach and understanding of how the shamanic journey and how Mary Magdalene come together to really work together that way. And how she used her own artwork to depict the, throughout the book also that she created a number of paintings. I have a question. Sure. It has to do with this, the light that comes that you're talking about. And we are we condensed light, our bodies, our this material world. Uh, are we is it or is it condensed in this on this plane? What do you mean by the word condensed? See what you it, well, it it becomes more. Um, in, uh, compacted. Okay. It is. It becomes compacted, but it in its compactedness gives a brilliance if we open to it. Okay. All of matter holds light. Back in the late 1980s, suddenly I no longer saw white light in my interior world. I saw black. And it shocked me. Because my training, if you see black inside, what does that mean? The evil, death, shadow. But as I started to explore it, I realized that the black that I saw was a velvety blackness. Not black, solid. And in that velvetness of the blackness was light. And in the creation story of the ancient Maya and the modern Maya, at the center of life is a stillness, is a quietness, is a calmness, where black at its center and black at its center holds the light that produces the growth into form and shape. So in matter, it is condensed, but in the condensed form, think of it like the soil and the quality of the soil changes how a plant grows. It's the soil isn't separate from the plant. It's an alchemy that comes together. That's what black, and in the ancient Maya, they call that place black as its center, the ekwai. Because in the midst of our solidness, is this light that emerges this growth that occurs. In the 20-day walls, on the first 17 days, we're establishing our connections of light to anything, in, to the invisible world, to everything inside of us, to everything outside of us. So on the 18th day of the new dawning, Nawal Kaniyam, I grow and I sprout out of this black as its center, out of this place of connection, 
I start to grow the sprouting of my new potential. That's what that solidness gives us that I feel you're describing. Does that make sense? Can you feel that? That's our potential. That's what we have to get in touch with to allow ourselves to live a life that has meaning and purpose. It's not what we do in life. It is the amount of light we are connected to that we bring forward to any activity we're involved in. In the late 60s and the 70s, we called it chopping wood and carrying water and we find enlightenment but we still have to chop wood and carry water but the second after enlightenment with the light that's present we still can bring that to any and all activities in life that form of light that's what that really means and our bodies our subtle energies is seeded for that to happen. There's a temple house in the Zutsuhiyamaya. It's called the House of Conception. But it's not the conception to give birth physically. It's the birth of wisdom. The birth of light and the different elements and the different forces that are there that brings together the alchemy so both light is stimulated, it grows, it emerges into the world, and it's supported into the world by the different statues of what that temple house holds in the various components that are there. On my website, conradsapella.com, where everything I'm talking about, I have images that talk about and shows you different aspects of what each one of these temple houses or statues look like and the structures that are there. And if you click on an image, it always will show you more information below the image on a deeper meaning to what it's about. Does that answer that? So the density is always our light that's present. And we're not taught that that's what matter is about. We're taught that it separates us from light. And it's just the opposite. And you'll see why when I take us through the stages of development of the fetus and pre-fetal development and what begins to happen and the rituals we do to bring that about. Anybody else? I have a question. Um, kind of on that same track, but it really struck me when you were talking about the light within a baby. And um, I own mom of three kids. And so when I heard that, it made me think as like a mother, but also as a human, like how do we harness that without destroying their own unique 
personality. And then within us, as you're talking about enlightenment and chopping wood and carrying water, what is the how to structure in staying in that light? Sure. The, the most foundational way to begin to grow the light within children is that not to keep identifying your child with its problems. And it's so easy as a parent <laughs> to identify a child based upon their problems or their lack or their struggles. Instead, beginning to see and know that light that you saw and experienced initially is still always present and the challenge the child is having with their behavior or in their learning is a challenge, but it isn't who they are. They still are that light. That's what I had to do with CNN and the news, to really understand humanity. I had to realize that there was a spirit, a soul, behind the molester, behind this action and that action, and the murderer, the rapist, all of those things, I would abhor their outer actions and their behaviors, but I would identify them as that, missing that they still are a soul. There's still a light that's there. And I can learn to honor that light in a child and letting that light then begin to assist how to dissolve the problem, the challenge the child is having, so the child's life can continually to grow. Instead of getting rid of the bad behavior. Does that make sense? My training initially was as a child therapist for about seven, eight years. And I predominantly only worked with children and adolescents. And then when I started to work with adults, I was realizing I was still working with children and adolescents <laughs> that was trapped inside of them. <laughs> and we have to free that up. And I'll talk a little bit towards the end, ways of beginning to do that as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend. But the first step is to always know and to feel the light that is present within the person regardless of how challenged you feel by the situation in front of you. That's always hard. And when I struggle with that for myself with a certain behavior or a certain structure, I know because I not, have not found that light with that part within myself first. Although I don't have a biological child, I adopted a child. And I still have to find that aspect in my parenting. I'm finding and healing these parts within myself before I could see the light within him and grow that light within him. Does that make a little bit more sense? We'll talk a little bit more how to do that. But never forget, there is a light behind all of us. Okay, why don't we take about 15 minutes, we'll come back and I'll finish up that.